We're going to be in Exodus uh, 25 through 27 most of the morning, but we're going to start in Exodus 19, so you can open up uh, wherever you'd like there. Exodus 25, we'll start in Exodus 19, though. We're going to be able to pick up our pace just a little bit compared to what we've done over the course of the last, uh, the last few months going through the book of Exodus, slowing down through a couple of chapters and really looking at all the details of the Exodus and those type of things. As we go through the back half of the book of Exodus, we'll kind of take it in big chunks and we'll, we'll look at what's going on in each of these uh, big chunks. But I think what we'll be able to do here, uh, because so much of what we're going to be reading is going to be a lot of detail. There's going to be a lot of detail in these chapters and it can be really easy to start looking so much at the trees that you miss the forest. And so uh, I think what we'll be able to do is once we pull out some of these details and then we back up a little bit, we'll see the full picture and we'll see a beautiful picture of God at work in the details and in the big strokes of what he is doing. Last week I talked about the repetition of uh, the blessing of repetition. Uh, and I gave you a peek inside my house and uh, our mini obsession or uh, kind of the soundtrack of our house for a very long time was Mary Poppins. And we talked about how it kind of earned its way into our life. But there was a second movie that also kind of took its place in our life for a period of time. It didn't have quite the staying power that Mary Poppins did. Uh, but it was, uh, for Abby, uh, it, was, it was quite the, uh, the obsession for a while. Got a few pictures of it here. Uh, that was the, the Wizard of Oz. You can see Abby. I don't know. She's probably three there, four maybe. I don't know how old she is. Uh, but... Uh, Dorothy and the, and the Wizard of Oz became uh, quite the obsession. So we would kind of go back and forth between Mary Poppins and the Wizard of Oz. Just back and forth. That's, that's what we always had on. And so Abby knew those. And uh, what is the, the classic line from that movie, of course, is there's no place like home. And that might be a good theme for us this morning, because what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at the links to which God will go in order to dwell with us. The links that God will go in order to be with us. And that's what chapters 25, 26, 27, and even some of the chapters following, that's what they are all about. So what I want to do is I want to go back a few weeks ago. I want to go back to chapter 19, and I want to read a couple of things to remind us of exactly what's going on right here in this setting. Remember, they're in Mount Sinai. They are uh, they're there. They've received the Ten Commandments. They've gotten the word from God. And then in Exodus chapter 19, this is right before Moses receives the Ten Commandments, we get a description of what's going on in Exodus chapter 19. So Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out to the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish." Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. 
And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down, come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Now I read that because it provides context for everything else that we're about to read in chapters 25, 26, and 27. This is prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments, but it explains how it kind of happened and how, how Moses was to go up Mount Sinai, how he was to receive these commandments. This is all of this stuff that we've studied and we've looked at. Only Moses could go, but maybe, maybe Moses could take Aaron with him, but really only Moses could go up there. Aaron couldn't go by himself. He could only go if Moses was there uh, two, and it was clear that no one else was to go up this mountain or they would be struck down and killed. The drama that unfolds in that first paragraph as it explains what's going on as the, the smoke rises like in a kiln, as the mountain, the top of the mountain is set on fire, as the thunder roars, as the lightning strikes, as the earth shakes. All of this goes on just so that God can come down to the top of this mountain and meet with one representative member of the nation of Israel. The reality was, and what this communicates to us, is that no one could go up this mountain because no one deserved to be in God's presence. They simply didn't belong in His presence. God granted Moses, the chosen representative, the mediator of the people of Israel, He chose him to be able to come up, but that was it. Otherwise, there was a perimeter, there was stern warnings, there was trumpet blasts, there was all of this stuff going on that signaled over and over and over, don't come near here, because God is here. It all signals the reverence and the gravity of what was happening. Fast forward a few chapters, and again, God again summons Moses up to the, to the mountain, but now he has something else to give them. He has something else to tell Moses whenever he goes up to the, the mountaintop. And, and what we're going to see is that a, a worship service kind of happens and, and God goes and he, and he says, this is what you need to do in order for this worship service to happen. Here's what needs to happen for, uh, for all of this to be created. So let's read a couple of passages from chapter 25. Fast forward a few chapters there. Chapter 25. Start in verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. A cubit and a half its breadth. And a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. What we're talking about here is the ark of the covenant. Raiders of the lost ark. All of that type of stuff. That's what we're talking about is the ark of the covenant here, right? So God is telling them how to make this thing how to create this thing, and he's going to tell them why they need to create it. So let's just keep, uh, keep reading. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put, it, put them on its four feet, two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry, it, to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark and they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put it into the ark, the testimony that I shall give you. Verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make one cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them and on the two ends of the mercy seat. 
Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to, one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. And there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony... <clears throat> I will speak with you about all that I give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So let's just stop right there. So this is really detailed instructions about how to make the Ark of the Covenant. I don't know about you, but when I read this, I get lost. One and a half cubits here, two and a half cubits here. What's a cubit? And then you've got to start going around trying to figure out what all this stuff is. And it's like, what is he talking about? And you can see a picture of it here. This is roughly what it may have looked like. And we kind of get the idea from this of what it would have looked like. And he tells them, all right, this is what you need to do. Here's what you need to create. I'll tell you what to put in it a little bit later. But this is to be built, and it would become the place where God would physically come to be with his people. The location between the two cherubim on top would be known as the mercy seat. And this would be the physical place that God would come and be with his people. You say, well, so if that's what it looks like, are we sure that's what it looks like? No, but we can get a pretty good idea from what we read here. Uh, and, and then you say, well, why does, why does God build it out this way? And you could ask this question as we go throughout the next few chapters with all the details that we've given. You can say, why does God do it this way? And I could probably give you a lot of different answers for this. And I could give you a lot of different things about why it needs to be one, half, one cubit by one and a half cubits and two cubits by two and a half cubits and all this other stuff. I could give you all that information, but I got to be honest with you, it would be pure speculation. Now, there's a few things that we could draw out from this, and we'll draw out a few here in just a few minutes. But I want to warn you as we get into this and as we start looking at all these things here in the book of Exodus, we're going to see God give these very specific instructions for the number of things and for the length of things and for the width of things and for the way fabric is sewn together and all kinds of stuff that you, we don't understand why it's there and it seems really odd. And I'd encourage you not to read too much into most of that. Now, there's some things we can pull out, and we'll do that. But I know a lot of preachers have made a lot of money supposedly knowing exactly why this number or that number was chosen. And they'll tell you that there are seven of these and 11 of these and two feet apart from here and two cubits here and 10, 10 to 12 cubits there. And all that ends up to be the, the, the time Jesus will return on the 12th blood moon of the new century of da-da-da-da-da. And there'll be like pictures of horses behind them in a, in a, in a giant like you know, poster that's back there, and they'll be talking about all these great things that are going to happen because they can use all of these measurements to prophesy something wonderful that's going to happen in the, future, in the future. I want you to listen to me. That stuff is nonsense. It's nonsense. Do not get suckered into listening to somebody that pretends that he's smarter than you simply because he made stuff up out of thin air. Okay? It's not smarter than you. It's not smart at all. It's not spiritual. It just makes him sound good. Okay? Now, again, there's a few things that we can pull out of here, but we're going to pull it from other pieces of Scripture that explain it. We're not just going to say, this is why there's 17 of these, because it represents the 17th blood moon or whatever. That's not what we're going to do. Don't get suckered into that. It's created out of pure speculation at best. But we do want to say that there are things we can affirm out of this. 
And one thing that we can say is that God doesn't do anything by accident. God gives these very specific instructions because God has a very specific plan. Some of it we know, some of it we don't. But we know that God doesn't do any of it by accident. He doesn't just say, hey, throw this thing together and this is what I want it to look like because whatever. He does it because he has a plan. He provides the detail because he is aware of the most minute details, even of a simple construction of a tent that would become the tabernacle. Even if we don't understand what's going on there, he does. He doesn't just paint with broad strokes here. He is meticulous because he has a purpose, even if we don't know what it is. Now, with all that said, let's draw out a couple of things. And there's one thing that I want to point to here with the ark that I want to make sure that we look at. And what I want to draw us to is the cherubim, the two angels on top of the ark. Now, what, what those cherubim are to do is they're to, to create a place called the mercy seat, the place where God physically comes to be. They create this and, and it's important for us to, to, to kind of go back and figure out where does some of this come from. If you go back into the book of Genesis, you go back and you read through the book of Genesis, we have a few appearances of angels. We have appearances of the angel of the Lord. We have a few different appearances of angels that kind of show up. But the last time that we saw this very specific type of angel, a cherubim, there were two of them there as well. It was in Genesis chapter 3. And they were placed outside of the Garden of Eden with a sword to keep mankind out because they had been kicked out of the garden for their sin. The garden was the last place that God and man had met and that God had been among mankind. Now we see the creation of this mercy seat with the cherubim on either side. And what we see is that again the cherubim will be the guardians of the place where God would come and dwell. We are meant to be drawn back to the relationship that God had prior to the fall with his people, with Adam and Eve, and how they walked together in the garden, and the perfect harmony that they had prior to their sin. And now God was coming back to be with his people. Move with me down just a little bit, and let's read a little bit more. Exodus chapter 26. Exodus 26, verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twine linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits and all the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain, that it is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another, and you shall make fifty clasps of gold, and couple the curtains one to the other with clasps, so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. Skip, skip down to verse 31 with me. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, and it shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang, hang it on four pillars, of acacia, four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold, on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there with the veil. And the veil shall separate, you, separate for you the holy place from the most holy. And you shall put the mercy seat 
on the Ark of the Testimony in the most holy place. Now, all kinds of stuff again. It goes and it goes with all these details. When I read that, that tells me absolutely nothing. I don't picture anything as I go with this. It just all feels a little bit overwhelming. Verse after verse after verse of these details, all related to the building of the tabernacle. Now what you need to know is this is a huge moment for the nation of Israel. You can see roughly what this would look like. A lot of you, your Bibles may have pictures of this, especially if you have a study Bible. You can go look it up online. There's a lot of really great pictures of this. You can get an idea of what it would have looked like. This outer courtyard, this fence that is set up, followed by each piece of the, uh, of the tabernacle that's there. And, and what we see is that this is a m- massive moment for the life of Israel. God is giving instructions for how He is to be approached. What He wants of His people. And how they are to act. In short, God is teaching them how to worship. He's teaching them how to worship. And in order to worship God, He was going to be present when they did. The tabernacle was the place for this to happen. And the only place this could properly happen. It was the place where God would come and dwell among His people. Now, there were still so many restrictions around it. Go to the the next slide there. If you go to the next slide, you can see uh, it lays it out a little bit more. This is kind of spread out a little bit more. Don't get... I know it's a little bit of an eye chart up there, but you can see you've got the outer courtyard. You come into the holy place and then beyond the holy place where there's, there's an altar and there's a lampstand and there's the showbread that is there. All that is there. When you go past that, you get into the holy of holies. There was all these stages and all these restrictions where you couldn't just go in there. It wasn't like you could just open the door to the tent and be like, oh, sorry, thought it was mine. And then you would walk out. You knew where the tabernacle was and you knew what was happening on the inside of it. And it had to be done exactly to God's specifications. Because at this point, He still could not come and openly dwell with His people without qualification. But He was creating something where He could be among them. The tabernacle was to travel with them everywhere. Remember, this is not a permanent building that you set up and that's where it stays. Whenever they would pick up and move, the tabernacle was to be moved with them. They did not leave the altar behind. You see that other places in the Old Testament where they they create an altar out of stones, leave it behind to, to remember things by, and then they move on. That's not the way the tabernacle was to work. It was to go with them everywhere. And whenever they set up camp, the tabernacle was to be right in the middle of the camp. It was to be right smack in the middle. And it was to be constructed every time by these exact specifications. It's not in the front. It's not in the rear. It's not off to the side so that it wouldn't be disturbed. It's right in the middle of the people. And this was the setup. Yes, God came to dwell, but he couldn't just show up. There was an outer fence that kept the people out. There was a courtyard, and then there was a veil of separation. God was with them, but He could not completely be among them. This was God's gracious way of coming to be with His people wherever they may be. It was His dwelling place. It was, in a way, His home when He was with His people. But it was limited because there had to be separation. 
So he creates this structure of the tabernacle so that all that that we read about him coming down on the mountain, that could instead be transferred to this place. It could be transferred to this place because the priests would consecrate themselves. That's all in chapter 27 and 28. We'll talk about that a little bit next week. An offering could be made. All of these certain things could happen that would allow the the, the proper kind of sanctification to happen so that they could come and they could offer this sacrifice to God. So no longer did we have to have a, a mountain that was on fire. God would instead come and he would be in the tabernacle with his people. All of this can tell us three things very clearly. It can tell us that God desires to dwell with His people. But it can also tell us that our sin separates us from being with God. But the best thing it tells us is that God provides a way to bridge that gap, that separation, through sacrifice and through mediation. So what we see with the tabernacle is that God wants to be among his people and he works to create this thing and he tells them to build this thing so that he can be among his people. But even in the midst of that tabernacle, he's not fully with his people because of the separation that sin has caused. But he provides a way in the tabernacle to bridge that gap so that he could still be there. When we began this series, I told you that throughout this book, we'd be looking at things that were very real things, but in a sense, they were only a shadow of the substance. They weren't so much the actual thing we were trying to see, so much as they were really pointing us to something else. The book of Exodus is really just a book of of veiled pictures pointing us to something else. A few years ago, I learned about an optical illusion that I had seen before, but I didn't know how it worked. If you've ever been to Disney and you've ridden the Haunted Mansion ride, you've seen this illusion. It's called Pepper's Ghost. Has anybody ever heard of this? Show of hands, anybody ever heard of Pepper's Ghost? All right, so there's a few of you. Put that picture up there for me of of Pepper's Ghost. Yeah, that right there. All right, so the way this works is you create an illusion for the crowd. And you can see down below, there's a projector lighting something that's down there, right? And that reflection is now up on the glass so that what the audience sees is really just nothing. It's just a reflection of what's there. So what you can can do is you can create this thing that looks like a ghost because there's not actually anything there. The substance, the real thing, is down below. It's totally different. Now, in a rough kind of analogy, that's kind of how this works. This is kind of what this is. The book of Exodus is like this because you can see some things very clearly, yet whenever you press into them, you realize that they aren't the true substance of what we're meant to see. They were merely shadows, kind of reflections of the real thing, but they themselves aren't really meant to be the true substance for us to see at all. So it is here with the tabernacle. Because this tabernacle is, on many levels, nothing but a giant arrow pointing us to the New Testament, begging us to see the true substance of what Jesus did and how God's presence changed once we got to the New Testament. So let's look at a few ways that this happens when we get to the New Testament. Let's look at where this tabernacle is meant to push us. We saw how it works in the Old Testament. We saw how it works in God's people in, in, in the, as they travel around in the tabernacle. But now let's move to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skip down to verse 14. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So there in verse 14, it says the word, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've talked about this before at Christmas time. That word dwelt there is literally translated that Jesus came and he tabernacled among us. He came and he was the tabernacle among us. He dwelled with us. And whereas God's glory was veiled somewhat in the Holy of Holies and only the priest could go in and make this offering there on the mercy seat and, and, and that could be done, now he comes in and John says that we have seen the glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Because Jesus came and He tabernacled among us. His presence here on earth. Emmanuel, God with us. This is what we will celebrate here in just a couple of months. Jesus goes on to do many, many, many other functions that we could draw out, but for the sake of time, I just want to push into a couple of other different areas. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We'll be bouncing around the New Testament here just for a few minutes. Matthew chapter 27, we're reading the account of Jesus' crucifixion. He's been tried. He's gone before Pilate. He's gone before the, uh, the scourge. He's been on the cross. He is, he's, he's done all of those things. Then we get to Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. And this is the moment where Jesus dies. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and He yielded up His spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple. Now we're talking about the temple here, but the temple was the forerunner, the precursor to the tabernacle. The temple was what was built once they, the Israel was in a permanent location. The tabernacle was what was there as they traveled uh, uh, around and as they moved around. So the, the tabernacle became the temple. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That curtain that we just read about just a few minutes ago, that curtain was torn in two. The one that separates the holy of holies from the rest of the tabernacle. The one that separates the mercy seat, the ark of the covenant. All of that was torn in two from top to bottom. Not a little tear, not something small. The whole thing was ripped open and the earth shook and the rocks were split. That veil we read about earlier, here it is again in the temple. And no longer is it needed to separate between the holy of holies. No longer is it needed to separate this line between God and man. Jesus' death had torn the veil in two because the veil was no longer necessary. It didn't need to be there. There was no point in the veil. It didn't need to be there at all anymore. And why? Because the altar was no longer necessary. This is what we've looked at the last few weeks from the book of Hebrews. Jesus was the sacrifice once for all. He was the one that once the sacrifice was made, He sat down at the right hand of the Father. The sacrifice was done. The veil didn't need to be there anymore because there were no more sacrifices to be made because He was, as we sang just a few minutes ago, the Lamb of God. 
The priest isn't necessary anymore because there's no more offerings to be made there in the tabernacle. We'll talk about this next week and this idea of the priesthood of the believer, if you've ever heard that term before. There's no more offerings to be made. There's no more sacrifices to be made. The veil is torn because the veil isn't needed because that thing that separated us from God, that thing that kept us out of the presence of God for our own protection isn't needed anymore because Jesus died and that changes everything. And it gets even better. In the Gospels, Jesus tells us that when he leaves, his presence will not So he comes and he dwells among us, but he doesn't just then leave and he's no longer dwelling among us. Instead, he ups the game just a little bit more. He tells us that in fact it's better if he leaves. Because if he leaves, he will send a helper. He will send the Holy Spirit and the Spirit will come. And what it says is that he will dwell in us. Move further ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You've probably heard this verse before, but you probably... You may not have applied it in this context. It's a, it's a proof text that a lot of people like to use for who knows what else. They use it for a lot of things. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Did you catch that? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Where? within you. Do you see this transformation that has happened from the book of Exodus and the tabernacle and all these super detailed plans about how God has to go, how we have to go through all these things so that we can, so that one person, one priest can be in the presence of God to offer this sacrifice. And now you get to the New Testament. Jesus has come. The veil is torn. No more sacrifices are needed. No tabernacle is needed. No temple is needed because you now are the temple and you have God himself living inside of you. Now, when it says the Holy Spirit, don't read that as like this kind of like super spiritual thing that, oh, that's really, that sounds cool. The Holy Spirit is God. And you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. He dwells in you if you are a Christian. We don't come to church here on Sunday mornings because we need to come into the presence of God. If you are a believer, He is already within you. There is no tabernacle to go to. Do you ever pray? Have you ever prayed? I I pray I fall into this kind of Christianese language. We say it all the time. God, just be with us. Just be with us as we travel. Just be with us as we as we do whatever. Just be with us as we go. Just be with us as we just be with us, God. And God's saying, I'm here. Holy Spirit is in residence. You don't even have to ask for that. I'm sitting there inside of you. I am here. God's people. You are now his dwelling place. We don't have to wait till a worship service or till a priest makes an offering. He's always there. We don't have to wait until we pay alms. We don't have to wait until we pay penance. We don't have to do any of those things. If you are a follower of Christ, if you have come to him and said, you are my king, I trust in you for my salvation, you are my sacrifice, the Spirit comes to live in you. We do not have any idea what that means. Whenever we see that fire and that trumpet and the earth shake and the smoke that rises like a kiln and the lightning and the thunder and all of those things that are so scary, that is in us. All of that power 
And even more, Jesus says the Spirit comes and He gives us even more. It's better if the Spirit is here. Because no longer is Jesus dwelling among us, the Spirit is dwelling in us. Man, that is amazing. I think, what if you could go to Moses? Like right before he goes up Mount Sinai, whenever God has called him up there. If you could go back to Moses and you could say, hey Moses, you see all that up there. You see all that stuff that's about to happen. And you know all these instructions that you have about the tabernacle and all these different things. What have I told you? What have I told you? Not only can you see God face to face, He's inside of you. He would have no, no way to comprehend that. It would terrify Him first and foremost. And then the idea that that kind of power would exist within Him Man, he would have no concept of that. He would have no way to process that. And yet you and I, that is the gift that we have. And then we walk around and we act like, oh man, you know what? It's just kind of a bad day. You know, I kind of got, got this going on and man, this is kind of lame and I don't know. I haven't really gotten to my Bible. I haven't read it that much. I haven't really, it's been a busy day. I haven't prayed. I haven't, haven't really, it's not just, I'll get to it. I mean, it's just not that. You have God inside of you and all of that power is there. Sometimes it can be easy to feel like God is distant from us. And certainly there's times that we see in the scriptures where where it's a desert land a little bit and we have trouble kind of reading and figuring out where God is. You read your Bible and it's just kind of dry. But sometimes the reason God is distant is because we think God is distant and we think that he's way out there. And we don't stop and think he's right here. Sometimes we, we don't realize that, that, that God is right here. And so we start thinking, God is so far from me. And we start saying, God, where are you? But he's saying, I'm right here. Quit reaching out there and just know that I'm here inside of you. Man, that's an amazing promise to be able to say that. As much as I love singing that Stand By Me song, and it is absolutely perfect and scriptural, he's not just standing by us, he's in us. He is in us. Friends, if you are new to Christianity, this is Christianity. Christianity is not this junk that you see on the news right now. Presidents and pastors claiming there's a revival breaking out because the president is being investigated. That's nonsense. That is not Christianity. I want to say that again. That is not Christianity. That is not a revival. That is chasing after a kingdom of this world. And I don't care which side of the aisle you're on. I don't care what your political basis is. We can talk all day long about votes. But I'm telling you, that's not Christianity. That is being obsessed with the kingdoms of this world. But this, that we are sinners, like the nation of Israel, separated from God. And like them, he chose to dwell among us but not as a cloud, not as a king, but he came as an unassuming carpenter's son and a rabbi that preached the kingdom of God that was nothing like the kingdom of this world. And in telling others that he was indeed God dwelling with us, he was killed for that. But that death, attempting to silence him, tore the veil that separated us from God. And if we have put our faith in Jesus, 
If we have put our faith in Jesus and believe that His death atoned for that sin once for all, then we too have become tabernacles, dwelling places for the living God. That is Christianity. And this morning, I hope you don't walk away from that. I hope you don't walk away from that just saying, eh, I don't know, sounds kind of crazy to me. Don't walk away from that dismissing and say, ah, I don't know, that just sounds so impractical. There could be nothing more practical for you in your life than knowing that Christ is in you, that the Spirit is in you, living, active, working, convicting you of sin, drawing you to Him, drawing you to repentance, helping you to worship in spirit and in truth, helping you to walk through, through dark times, helping you to walk through suffering and pain, helping you to offer forgiveness where no forgiveness is warranted to others. There's nothing more practical than this idea that the Spirit dwells within us. He tabernacles within us. Wow, that is an amazing truth for us. That is Christianity. That's what it means to follow Christ. And I hope that this morning you will speak with someone about that. I'll be available in the back afterwards. If you came with someone, somebody invited you, I can assure you there's nothing else than they would want than to be able to talk about that with you. That's what it means to have Jesus in your heart. That's kind of Christian language that we use that sounds kind of, it kind of borrows from a few different places in Scripture. But it's God within us because of that. The sacrifice that Christ made on the cross, tearing the veil, removing that separation. And that is there for you. Will you pray with me? Father, what a blessing this is. What a blessing this is to be able to sing songs and to be able to study something like this. Father, I pray that you will forgive us where we are so blind to see these things. Father, may our, may, may our minds and our hearts burn the same way that Moses' would have in your presence. But that we would understand what it means to have you dwelling in us. Temples of the Holy Spirit. And that we would be able to lay our sin before you on the mercy seat. The sacrifice of Jesus would be enough to cover all of our sin, to tear the veil, to remove the separation, and that you would dwell within us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.